spoiler alert, I have this super aggressive cancer. So that's really uncommon. It's like less than 3% of all breast cancers. We've had so many people asking, how can I pray? What can I pray for? And we've just always said, just pray for a miracle. That's pray for a miracle because that's the only thing we've got. Hello and welcome to Candid, where we never settle for less than the truth. I'm your host, Jonathan Youssef. Each week we'll tackle tough issues, answer your hard questions, and take a candid look at the Christian faith. Would you mind leaving us a review today by leaving a review and a rating? It helps others to find us and it would be a huge help. Using your favorite podcast platform, go to our show and leave a rating along with a review and perhaps next week. We will mention you on the show. Just imagine with me for a moment. You've battled cancer for several years, but have just celebrated one year of no cancer detected. Then something changes. You visit the doctor who tells you it's back and it's aggressive. You now have two years to live. There aren't any curative measures. This is it. This was the reality of my guest, Sarah Pattison, who's been battling an aggressive form of breast cancer for the past three years. Sarah shares her journey with honesty and vulnerability from her early struggles as a financially challenged mother to having to rely solely on Christ in her battle with cancer. Despite the storms raging around her and despite a dire prognosis, Sarah's faith has set down deep roots as she has been firmly planted in Jesus. It is that faith that allows her to share her story along with great hope as we talk together. Stay tuned all the way to the end to hear an update on Sarah's health. Well, today my guest is Sarah Pattison, and um, she's coming to us from Knoxville, Tennessee, and it's such a privilege to have you with us today. Sarah, you are the owner and creator of the Happy Envelope, which designs and prints luxury invitations, encouraging paper goods, and uh, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Candid Conversations. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Well, we haven't brought you on to discuss uh, paper goods, um, maybe much to the chagrin of some of our listeners that want to hear more about that. I will encourage our listeners to go to your website. Perhaps they would like to purchase paper goods there, a little shameless plug there. But um, I would encourage them to go and read your blog as it relates to your cancer journey. Now, before we get to that, I wonder if you could just uh, give us some snapshots of what it was like Sarah Pattison, growing up, moving all across the country. I've had the privilege of knowing your parents for the last few years, and um, I know a little bit of the story, but I'd love for our listeners to get a little bit of some of your background. Sure. So I was sort of raised all over the country. I always say really that I feel like I grew up in Rhode Island, so I feel like I'm a New Englander in my heart because we moved there when I was in about sixth grade, and I graduated from high school there. So that was sort of Mm -hmm. my coming of age. (laughs) But I always remembered, we spent some time in Atlanta before that, and I remembered sweet tea and grits. There you go. And when it came time to go to college, I was like, I think I'm going to go back to the South. (laughs) 
so it was warm there <laughs> and they had good food and people were friendly. I mean, I yeah. remembered all those things <laughs> um, from like being a third grader. And I ended up at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, Tennessee. Go. Yeah. So I majored in graphic design. I kind of knew, always knew I was an art person. My parents were so um, like encouraging in that, in mm. the arts and kind of, they were just great at letting us be the people God wanted us to be, I think. Yeah. And so I pursued graphic design and moved to Knoxville, not knowing anyone, no one in the whole city and just kind of thought, sure, I'm up for an adventure. Why not? You know, <laughs> it seems different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It seems different. It seems warm. And the ironic thing is I really didn't even know it snowed or anything. I mean, I remember in like yeah. November having to call my mom and say, you've got to send me pants. Because I had just not really packed it. Knoxville does get cold, doesn't it? Yeah, right. All the time. Yeah, had to go back to geography. Yeah, and so ended up um, in Knoxville, Tennessee, for my four years of school um, of undergrad here, and met my husband Ty through our ministry together in Young Life. We were both Mm -hmm. Young Life leaders and got to know each other through that. And um, I mean, I love Knoxville. So I've been here ever since. His family is sort of born and raised here. So there's like okay. 27 Pattison family members in one neighborhood and we're part oh, of it. So okay. We're you're like right all in, the- in. We can't leave. We can never <laughs> you're, leave. You're in the <laughs> thick of it. <laughs> That's right. But very different, interestingly, than growing up the way I grew up all over the country with no family around. It was, yeah. just, you know, our the four of us, my brother and my parents. So I think I can really actually... Maybe it would freak some people out, but I really appreciate it. I really appreciate all the family around. It's fun. They're good. You know, they're good people. So it makes it easy. But it was very different than the way we grew up. Yeah. Um, And faith in the family. uh, I know your mom was deeply tied in with BSF and leading Bible studies. And so what was that like? Yeah. So I figured out... Sort of early on, I guess once I was in like sixth grade and I was in a public school in New England, that my family was not normal with their Christianity. I think New England is about as spiritually dead as like Eastern Europe. Yeah. It is really, really dead. Yeah. And so I just figured out probably in that stage where kids are sort of trying to find themselves and... I started looking around and realizing like my family was weird. (laughs) They were very, they were very boots on the ground believing Christians. My parents were really first generation Christians. And um, so sometimes I, I I think they made it very real. It was very much a part of our, you know, decision-making as a family. Well, what would the Lord think about that? Or well, we need to pray about that. And, and not just in word, but indeed, Mm. And so it was really wonderful and for sure informed my faith today. Mm. Mm. Um, I'm very thankful for it. I didn't always love it when I was a teenager, but I can be thankful for it now for sure. Yeah. So move to Knoxville, study at UT, Mm -hmm. uh, meet your husband, settle down, start a business. Yeah. So actually that was kind of a crazy story in and of itself because I was a graphic designer and I was working for a little teeny tiny graphic design firm. There were like four of us total or whatever. 
And uh, my husband was working, Ty was working for Young Life full time. So yeah. he was in ministry full time. And because he was like in his first two years when we were married, they called it an internship at the time, which meant he made almost no money and had to raise all right. of it himself. Yeah. <laughs> Basically right. Basically what that meant. Yeah. So for us, that meant I was the breadwinner, you know, with my meager okay. graphic design salary. So we were, you know, had like very little money. And then I lost my job because the company that I worked for filed for bankruptcy. It was like very poorly run. I mean, I was, I, there was a lot I learned about how not to do things from my time there. Sure. Sure. You know, honestly, Jonathan, we were so stupid. We had no plan, no business plan, nothing on paper. Just, I had this idea that was like, I love invitations. I had always loved creating like small things and things in paper and things that could go through the mail, things that were like a little surprise for someone on the other end. Yeah. It still means so much, right? We can't. Sort of that lost art of letter writing yeah. and receiving. You know, now we get mail and we think, you know, what is this? The eighteen hundreds? We're getting yes, letters exactly. handwritten. Like, bill, bill, bill. <laughs> <laughs> add, so it add. really. I mean, I remember being in like fourth grade and fifth grade and writing letters to friends and design, like yeah. decorating the envelope and sending it. So I don't know. It's just always been in me. I love. I yeah. love that. Yeah. So I started this. And we kind of like a literally on a hope and a prayer could like feed ourselves and keep the lights on. And I will tell you that those were such formative years because they were really hard. Mm-hmm. Ty was on Young Life staff for about five years. And that was hard in and of itself. I mean, you know, you're in ministry and ministry is filled with flawed, sinful people. And you expect. Including it yourself. Yeah. <laughs> It's like, you know, hard in its own ways. Yeah. And um, there came a time where it was just, I mean, the Lord made it like painfully obvious that it was time for him to not be doing that anymore. Yeah. And so again, stupidly, we were like, well, why don't you just come work with me? And so we started working together doing the happy envelope, which still made very little money. I mean, we were, I don't even know if we were like paying I mean, I guess we were paying ourselves because how else did we like <laughs> off the generosity was, of others? It was meager. I will say yeah. that it was okay. meager. And there were a lot of mornings. Mm. And of course, we had these two babies. We had two little girls that were born just 13 months apart. So Esther is our oldest. She's 16 now. But at the time we had Esther and then we had Nell, like mm. basically a year later. I mean, to say that we were drowning is an understatement. We were like stressed to the max. How do we, you know, like raise these babies and keep the lights on? We were working out of the house. Yeah. And we would (laughs) wake up in the morning and be like, who takes the morning shift of work and who takes the morning shift of babies and who takes the afternoon shift. And it was sort of like tossing a coin because they slept in the afternoon. So everyone wanted the afternoon shift of the babies. (laughs) It's the the me time hour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, It was so hard, but what those were such formative years for me because Mm. I can remember Waking up, you know, with two babies, someone was awake at like 530 in the morning for a feeding or whatever. I mean, Mm. 
And I remember vividly coming out of baby's room after putting her down, back down at like 5 a.m. and thinking, okay. Finally. I have like an hour and a half before the next one wakes up for the day. I have a choice right here, standing in the hallway in my bathroom. Like I have a choice. I can go back to bed or I can go make a pot of coffee and like open up the word and just take some time Mm. to in a quiet house with the Mm. Lord before the chaos really begins Mm -hmm. and feeling this. I mean, I was so desperate, Jonathan, that that was what like brought me to the coffee pot (laughs) in the morning is like, I don't know if we can do this. I don't think we can make it. Mm. And Mm. that is what just led me to prayer morning after morning after morning. And honestly, a lot of it was just like a verbal vomiting of Mm. like, we can't do this. We can't make it. How are you going to do this? Mm. And First of all, I think the Lord showed up so many times in so many interesting and like bizarre ways that I couldn't believe it was coincidence. Yeah. You know, I think when you start praying, you start looking. Yeah. And you start seeing. Isn't that amazing? It is. You can't call it coincidence anymore. Yeah. When you've been asking Mm. very specifically. And you're seeing it tangibly. Yes. And you're seeing it tangibly. Mm. Let me give you one example. When we were, you know, young marrieds and we had these tiny babies and we were like drowning and I was starting to, um, and I write about this in some of the blogs, but I was really starting to get bitter and very irritated with Ty and felt like really critical of him. And I could tell that my heart wasn't right, but it's like the plank in the, yeah. In your eye. Yeah, sure. And I started praying that the Lord would just open my eyes to see what he was doing Mm. because I felt like I was carrying so much. I felt like I was carrying this business. I mean, it was my business and he had kind of joined me. You know, it was a creative business. Like so much of the bulk of that rest, I mean, it rested on me. Yeah. And then I felt like as a mom with kids, I was carrying a lot. And anyway, so I started praying that. And like two days later, I drove in and I pulled in the driveway of our home. I just noticed that the trash was pulled up to the edge of the curb and Ty was out in our like little yard with two little babies, like following him around and he was mowing, like push mowing, you know, the yard. Yeah. And it was like, I just saw right there. Oh, I'm not mowing the yard. Yeah. I'm not taking care of the trash. And I think that's just one example of how prayer changes what we see but it also changes us Mm, 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 mm. and it changes circumstances, but you know, that's like one example. And so a lot of those things I was praying about, how are we going to make it? Like, Lord, we need money. We need money. We need like $250 this week to make it. Yeah. And it's like on Friday, there's that $250 order that I needed. And I'm like, okay, well we can keep going then. (laughs) You know. Just keeping your head above water. Yeah. Exactly. But like you said, it's it's formative. I mean, those were, you know, as much as you probably wouldn't want to go back to those days, but those days 
were sort of etching into your own mind and experience God's provision and care. And, but like you said, like, you know, if there isn't moments of prayer and thinking and thoughtfulness, you could miss all of that and be asking the why me and, you know, just sort of digging a ditch for yourself in a lot of ways that I think a lot of people do. And that's kind of the American gospel in a lot of ways is, you know, look at these people who are prospering so much and I want that. Why is God not doing that for me? And then it's sort of this, woe is me. Yeah. And I think my own personality is really bent towards a, like, am I competent enough? If I try harder, if I just tried harder, if I just knew what I was doing a little bit more, if I was just a little smarter, Mm -hmm. if I just had more business acumen, if I just X, Y, Z, if I just knew how to do social media the way so-and-so knows how to do social media, or there's this constant comparison of myself and my abilities to other people around me, that is my bent. And Mm -hmm. so I have had to lay that bear before the Lord so many times Mm -hmm. and just be reminded that that is the opposite of the gospel. Yeah, It's the opposite. The only thing we can bring to the Lord is our desperation. And he will continue to give you the opportunity. And I believe he gave me those opportunities early on as a formative like training ground for what was to come that I had no idea, you know, we had no idea what was around the corner, but good grief. I could not be handling now or it would be a lot more difficult. I think right if we hadn't walked through what we did back then and saw what he did. I mean, I'm reminded constantly of the Israelites and how God's like, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget. Because, we have to look back and just yeah. remember what right. he has already done, who yeah. he is. Yeah. Well, let's fast forward a little bit and um, let's come up to the point when you started having some medical conditions that are coming up. And yeah. um, let's talk a little bit about that. What was that like? Yeah. Sure. So first of all, let me just set the stage here because it is March of 2020. Mm. We all remember that. And this global pandemic is like hitting the world. Yeah. Um, 78% of our business income comes from luxury wedding invitations. Weddings were definitely on pause. Yeah. Oh, I remember standing with Ty at the kitchen sink in the probably July of 2020 saying, well, You know, we had signed a lease on this new big studio on Kingston Pike, which is like our big street. It's like one of the peach trees in Atlanta, you know, our big like thorough through all the heart of Knoxville. And we have like 12 employees, which for us is like 12 employees. Like we never thought we'd be here, you know, And, um, and all of a sudden, I mean, nothing. We were just getting phone calls every day of people canceling their weddings and the future looked so bleak, you know, we just didn't know would people, what was this going to look like six months from now? I mean, how long could we last, you know, in July, I remember standing with him by the kitchen sink and just like leaning into his shoulder and saying, well, at least if we sink, we didn't do it this time. (laughs) 
Like, this is outside of our hands. <laughs> That's right. Again, the competence thing. You know, it always comes back to at least I didn't do it. Like, <laughs> we can blame someone um, else for this. That was in July of 2020. And in August, just the next month, in August of 2020, in early August, I remember just noticing a just a a difference in my left breast and like kind of thinking, oh, it's just, I don't know. It wasn't a lump. It wasn't yeah. a bump. And so it was kind of like, eh, eh. and then a few weeks later feeling like, God, maybe I need to like look into this. Cause it's kind of weird. It was just yeah. sort of felt like my left breast was like breastfeeding again. And, um, it was just sort of swollen. And mm. so I went and had a mammogram and I remember going in, it was my first mammogram cause I was just turned 41. Right. And went into this mammogram and I remember the nurse looking at me and she said, you just now noticed this? Oh, goodness. And I was like, oh, oh don't say that. I mean, I, know. <laughs> I felt so go, stupid. You know, I felt so bedside stupid. manner school or something terrible. But, um, you know, spoiler alert, I have this super aggressive cancer. So that's. Mm really uncommon it's like less than three percent of all breast cancers so she probably just didn't know that it actually had just now happened yeah okay like it was a unique situation i wasn't like a total dum-dum that just <laughs> let this grow for like years um and so before like we had that mammogram and you know god was very gracious in that because it's really unusual that someone gets a cancer diagnosis at their first appointment. I yeah, mean, someone right. was like, yeah, there's something concerning here. Right. We need to do more tests. More tests. Yeah. But, I mean, they called us back. Ty was with me and we had a radiologist. I mean, he sat down with us. He was like, Hey, you've got cancer and you've got mm. a lot of it. We're going to do a biopsy so we can know that for sure. But you've got breast cancer. Mm. So we left that appointment like shocked. And you know, I write about this in the blog, but we sat in the car and we just cried. Mm. And I said, Hey, let's just say out loud right now all the things that we're afraid of. Yeah. I was like, Gosh, I'm, you know, I'm afraid I'm going to die. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid you're going to have to raise three girls by yourself. We have two teenagers and then we have our bonus baby, Eden, <laughs> who's like 10 years younger than the well, rest. That's how I was. I was the bonus yeah. baby. You were the bonus baby. Yeah. And look at you. Look at that. You're great. It's amazing. <laughs> there's hope. <laughs> and there's hope. Um, I'm afraid you have to raise these three girls by yourself. I'm mm-hmm. afraid of looking ugly. I'm afraid of losing all my hair. Yeah. I'm afraid people won't know how to talk to me. Yeah. That it'll be awkward everywhere I go. And then Ty had a bunch of things too. And we just cried and then had to, you know, start making phone calls, like phone calls to parents, phone calls to dear friends. And um, so that was the beginning of our journey. And that was in August of 2020. My cancer story started out normal and turned out very not normal. So I did all the things that you would normally do. You know, it was like, uh, so it was diagnosed as like a stage three breast cancer. Mm -hmm. So when they do staging, Jonathan, it's really like basically all anyone needs to know is stage four is where you don't want to be Yeah, because that is basically means at that point, cancer has gone to a distant place in your body and there's no, can't stop usually no cure. Yeah. yeah. So it's kind of like at that point, they're just um, 
they call it. It's not curative. It's just like managing. Yeah. And so stage three to be diagnosed at stage three was like, "Mm, you're not quite to stage four, but like you want to be diagnosed at stage one or two if you can. And so I did all the things, you know, that we were supposed to do and did all the chemo things and did all the sick stuff. And we did that all through the fall and then was finished with that in January of 2021, had a couple months off, did a double mastectomy, uh, which was emotionally and mentally. I mean, I wasn't even that worried about the physical part of it. I was just really worried about, and rightfully so, because that part was just so much harder. Just I'm thinking back to having to make those decisions. You know, one thing that has surprised me with all of this is how many decisions we've sort of had to make ourselves that your medical Mm -hmm. team sort of says, well, you could do a lumpectomy. It's up to you. And I'm like, what do you mean it's up to me? Like, just tell me what to do. Get rid of this cancer. Yeah. 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 Tell me what to do. And so I learned really early on. I mean, I have a pretty, I'm a pretty assertive person. And so that worked in my favor. I think I asked a lot of questions and I, I would encourage anyone listening. Good grief. You just got to be, put your bossy pants on and like be pushy. And I mean, you know, they call it advocating for yourself. There's like language for it, but you really, really need to do that because they aren't going to make decisions for you. You're going to have to get, you know, the information to do it. So, so I did what I thought was best. We had prayed about it a lot. I prayed about it a lot and I decided I was going to do the double mastectomy and stay flat. So not do any kind of reconstruction because my cancer was so aggressive. Yeah. It was just kind of the best way to um, catch any recurrence that would potentially come back and have kind of nothing in the way basically. So this is when it started to get crazy, (laughs) but I had that mastectomy. My surgeon actually told me, I asked, you know, he said, you can get a lumpectomy or you can get a mastectomy. And I said, well, like talk me through the difference in recurrence. Cause that's what I was most worried about is like, I never want this to come back. Of course. And he said, well, because of your age, cause you're young, basically you have all the more years for it to come back. Yeah. And so, you know, if you get a lumpectomy, it's probably like you have a chance, maybe a 30% chance of recurrence. And I said, well, what if I get a mastectomy and just like cut everything off? And he said, I mean, less than 1% chance. And I was like, well, then that answers my question. Yeah, right. <laughs> Mastectomy it is. I didn't so great at I math, but that, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So I tell you that because in light of what happened next, it was just like mind blowing. So we had that conversation. I had the mastectomy. I had about six weeks before I was supposed to start radiation. And about five weeks after my mastectomy surgery, I went into radiation. They like do what's called mapping. They put these little stickers all over your, you know, chest to kind of create this map of where the radiation is going because they can pinpoint radiation so precisely now. Mm. And I had like, you know, maximum amount of radiation you could have because this cancer had just, it was just kind of like just super aggressive breast cancer. And so they did all that. And I was supposed to start radiation the next Tuesday. And Jonathan, that Thursday night before that Tuesday, so it was like five and a half weeks post-surgery, Yeah, I was undressing and I was like, what is this weird like rash on my chest? I have this like 
bumpy rash on my chest. It was odd. And I asked Ty to look at it and he was like, I don't know. I mean, we were like, maybe this is like scar tissue or something. Yeah. And, you know, I just had the surgery. Not. And then that night, that was in the morning, a Thursday morning. And that Thursday night, it looked worse, yeah. like bumpier and more red. Mm. And the next morning I got up early and I was having my prayer time, my quiet time. And I just, I remember um, Ty was still up in bed and I remember him, I just got a ding on my phone and he had sent me this article on inflammatory breast cancer, Mm. which I had never heard of before. I didn't know what it was. And, um, it was a picture of a rash that looked just like mine. Mm. And I texted my oncologist and he wrote back and said, I'm out of town. This doesn't sound like cancer. Breast cancer doesn't behave this way. This is, you know, but go ahead and go see your surgeon and he'll take a look at it. And then I called the surgeon. He was out of town. Oh, goodness. I know. But we um, went in and saw the nurse practitioner that day, and she looked at it, and she was like, I remember she called it an explosive recurrence of cancer. Oh, my goodness. Which actually wasn't right. What it turns out happened is I was basically misdiagnosed from the beginning. I've always had inflammatory breast cancer. Inflammatory breast cancer just is breast cancer that starts in the breast, but it also starts at the same time in the lymph nodes. You have cancer of the mm. lymph nodes and you have cancer of the um, dermal layer of the skin. So the underneath mm. the first layer of that skin has cancer mm. and it originates there. And you also have it in your lymphatic fluid. So that's why it's so aggressive because the lymphatic fluid actually washes your whole body the lymphatic fluid is flowing throughout your whole body all the time. Right. And so that's what makes it such a crummy cancer because it's basically washing throughout your body. Mm. (laughs) Mm. So what they were seeing as recurrence wasn't basically when I had that surgery, Jonathan, they basically cut it open and seeded the cancer, which ended up probably saving my life in some ways because we could see it. And so because Mm. we could see it on the skin, Right. You know, we knew. And so we held radiation and um, had to figure out our next steps. Yeah. Talk me through those emotions and those feelings just in that process. Oh, my gosh. Um, The crazy thing is I feel like I've been on this roller coaster and that was just the first time that I remember thinking, oh, I think this might kill me. Mm. I think doctors had always kind of been like, hey, yeah, you've got a lot of cancer. Yeah, but like basically give it a year and a half. It's going to be hard, but then like you'll get past it. We have treatments that can help you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Mm. like the language started to change, you know, and it was like, well, what we're going to try is Mm. Mm. this. Or yeah, cancer doesn't normally behave this way. This is unusual. Language you don't want to hear. Yeah. And so I started to hear it differently. We could literally see this cancer on my body Mm. and just because of the nature of what it is. And you could see it change within 24 hours. So, you know, I might have like five bumps and then the next day I'd have like eight bumps, Mm. like cancer growing before your very eyes. And it was 
so alarming and yeah. so scary. Yeah. And um, I mean, there were just a lot of tears and a lot of like, you know, I got to tell you, I think a lot of this is there's so much that comes that's more than you think more. You would think, yeah, you're worried about dying or you're worried, but really you're worried about even things like, how do I tell people this? Who do I tell? Yeah. Um, what do we tell? We don't even know what we're looking at yet. Yeah. Yeah. So in these like in between times, I think that's been for me personally, one of the hardest things. Um, we have a very wide net and we have a lot of wonderful people who support us. And it's like, how do you figure out yeah. who gets this information? I mean, you get, and then you start telling people and you get like, you know, 2000 texts in one day and it's like, how, it's you, overwhelming. you respond to people. I mean, that's overwhelming. Um, so even managing that I think was, it was terrible. Is this the point when, you started to use your writing as sort of an outlet or were you doing that before this? So I actually started writing the blog, like probably two years before I got cancer or before I was diagnosed with cancer, but it just occasionally, you know, every few months or something, I'd put something up and, but I think that what happened with the cancer, I think there are a few situations in life and this is one of them where people are willing to listen to you in a different way. Yeah. It's like, I mean, I guess I would call it a platform. Yeah. It's probably not a platform anyone wants, but right. um, I would say this is probably when it started gaining a lot of traction. Yeah. And it's really important to me when I write and I hope it comes through in the writing. Like I've said to Ty, gosh, I never want to write a cancer blog. I don't want that. I believe that like the story that we have walked through is just a tangible public picture of what many people walk through on a daily basis with their own hard. There are really hard things that people go through that they can't write a blog about. Yeah. They can't write a blog about their, you know, adulterous husband Yeah, or wayward child. Yeah. Or right. addiction. Yeah. But these things are like horrible and hard. And real. And real. And affect faith. And, you know, where is God in this? Yes. And so I think that's where the traction has come from. Is yeah. I am really honest. I try really hard not to overshare. Right. Um, and to use discretion. I think it's just a really public picture of what's going on in a lot of people's hearts. Yeah. So that's probably when it started to gain a lot of traction because the world along with me started to realize, Oh, this, I think this might kill her. Mm. It's not like watching yeah. a car accident no, or something. No, I think right. it's more like, Oh my gosh, what is happening here? Mm. What's next? Yeah. Sort of. Yeah. So what was next? We didn't know what was next. We had, you know, a surgeon telling us this. We had people with different medical people telling us things. I mean, I know the Lord very graciously directed our steps. Mm. I had one really wise older friend say, hey, I think if I were in your shoes, I'd maybe try to get out of Knoxville. Like, they're great here, but yeah. if you're the very best of the best... 
you got to go somewhere else. Very specific cancer. Yeah. You're not in Knoxville. Yeah. You're somewhere else. So maybe that's a consideration. So that got me kind of like thinking. And then I had a friend, an old acquaintance, an old young life leader from like 20 years ago, reach out and say, Hey, can I call you? Do you have a minute? And it was a guy we had been young life leaders together. And he called and he was like, Hey, do you remember that? Like right when I graduated college, I had this weird blood cancer. Mm. And I said, I feel like I kind of do remember that, but you know, we like didn't really cross paths that much. And he was like, yeah, I spent time at, I mean, he named every cancer institution in America, basically. And he's like, they couldn't even diagnose me, Sarah. Like what I had was so rare. They couldn't even diagnose me. And he was like, I always tell people when cancer gets weird, just get on a plane and get to MD Anderson. Mm. You just need to get there, get a second opinion. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. And so I was like, okay. So I did. MD Anderson's in Houston. It's, you know, arguably the best cancer institution in the world. Yeah. There are other good ones, but um, they have a an inflammatory breast cancer clinic. Oh, so wow. all they see is specific, yeah. Inflammatory breast cancer, you know, from sun up to sundown. When I went out there, Jonathan, I met with a radiologist out there. And she was very dry. She's like, <laughs> and um, I said, hey, her name was Dr. Woodward. She was great. And I was like, hey, Dr. Woodward, can I, can I be really honest and ask you an honest question? Like, doesn't the computer kind of do this, the radiation <laughs> part? And I was like, do I really need to live in Houston for three months and like uproot my whole life and get treatment here? And she said, Sarah, let me ask you a question. Have you ever seen your original MRI from August of 2020 when you were first diagnosed with breast cancer? And Ty and I looked at each other and we were like, I don't actually, I don't think I have ever seen it. And she said, would you like to? And I was like, sure. So she, you know, takes a second, pulls this up on the computer. Here I see these you know, at the time, of course, and at this point I'm talking to her, I have no breasts, right. but I see these two, you know, breasts on a scan right? and one is significantly larger than the other. And she starts pointing and she was like, do you see this? Um, the larger one, it looked like someone had taken chalk and right. just outlined it. Right. And she said, do you see this like white line? And I said, yeah. She said, that's cancer in your skin. Mm. It's cancer in your skin from day one. And do you see this like basically nodes on the other side, not my left, not my affected side, yeah, but the other right. side were all lit up. She said, do you see that? That's cancer in your lymphatic system from day one. She was like, your doctors at home have probably seen a handful of inflammatory breast cancer patients in their whole career. I saw five before I met with you today. <laughs> Yeah. And she was like, I just look at it and I know, I know exactly what I'm looking for. Yes. She said, some people, absolutely. I would say, go home and get this radiation done. You absolutely not. Yes. You need to live here for three months and you need to let me do it. Wow. And so (laughs) I was like, okay. Well, there you go. And so then there you're like, well, how do I afford this? How are we going to do this? Yeah. How am I going to move to Houston for three months? I run a business. I own a small business. Like, 
And so then it was like the roller coaster ride again. You know, we started all over again on, okay, now we know the next steps, but is God going to provide? Is he going to give us what we need to get there? Yeah. So we had this new direction, but it felt like climbing a mountain. I had to move to Houston, live there for three months, have actually, I I didn't even mention I had to have an enormous surgery. It was like a 16 hour surgery Goodness! in order to get rid of the cancer that had come back on my chest. It just kept coming back, Jonathan. It's like they would give me, you know, well, why don't we do this chemo and see if we can kind of get rid of it? Yeah. So was it the cancer mutating and and, rea- and sort of overpowering whatever treatment drug was being used to, yes. to slow it down, to stop it? Yes. Yes. And so now with um, cancer treatment, you know, sort of the new thing is this, um, they call it genome therapy Mm -hmm. where they actually can target like what gene, like what is actually mutating in there? And do we have something that can target that mutation so that we're just, you know, we're killing it that way. And I have two gene mutations in, you know, cancer by nature is a gene mutant. I mean, is mutating cells. So you have something and I have two and both of them like boots on the ground, basically what, those mutations do, they're just not good because they override the cancer treatment. They basically override the treatment. They keep changing. Yeah. You know, they call it outsmart the therapy. Mm. They outsmart the therapy. Mm. So after we had that initial chest thing happen, one of the big question marks, I, I started a, um, like an oral chemo to try to just tamp that down and see if we could get rid of it that way so that then we could do a surgery to remove that patch of skin then radiate and like hope for the best was basically the, the answer my local doctors gave. Yeah. And then when I went to MD Anderson, they said, yeah, that's true. But because I stayed flat, I had not very much skin to like, they had to take off this very large amount of skin Yeah. and there's no way to close that up. Like how do you close up a wound when you have no tissue Yeah. and it's in an area where there's no fat yes. because you know, it's completely flat now. Right. Right. And so they decided to do a surgery called a deep flap where they literally take like it's basically like a tummy tuck. They take like fat <sighs> from your belly and all the it's a microsurgery, so they take all of the um, blood vessels yeah. down there and then they have to put it up on your chest to close the wound. So that's why it was such a long surgery. My goodness. But it was successful. Had that done at MD Anderson. I mean, amazing. It was successful. It was long, but, and then I started radiation and with inflammatory breast cancer at MD Anderson, they radiate twice a day. So you'd go in the morning and have radiation and then you'd go in the afternoon and have radiation. Intensive. Intensive. And that's because it's in the fluid. And so they're trying, they're, they literally like radiate everything, everything they can radiate. Cause it's, you know, this idea that, that, microcellular cancer might still be in there. So walk us through that sort of three months, right? What what was that three month journey like? Well, the Lord provided in miraculous financial ways. Mm. I think probably one of my most visited blogs for sure is that one. I think it's called the joy of participation. Yeah. It was like a sort of an ask like, Hey, this is what we have to do. 
this is what we think we need. And people just (laughs) blew us away, Mm. blew us away, Mm. blew us away. It's remarkable. So we were able to live there. So I was able to secure a, a nice apartment that was close to the hospital that was like within walking distance because I wanted to be able to walk to and from radiation if I could, cause it was, yeah. you know, like if I could, yeah, um, it's intense. It's a, it's a lot of, yeah. So I yeah. thought, you know, if I can be like less than a mile, then I'll at least get some steps in. And, hmm. um, I had friends come out one week at a time. So I had like, you know, my parents were there for maybe a week and a half or two weeks. And then I had one friend per week come out and live with me for a week to help me. So for three Mm. months, I had a friend a week out staying with me because Ty, I mean, he came out with the girls a few times, but he was like doing everything solo at home, you know, all the basketball and all the homework and the girl that wasn't even in kindergarten yet. I mean, preschool, you know, and um, so he Mm. was doing all that. And you know what? It was, it was a very weird time. It was sweet with each one of those friends. Yeah. To have that like more intimate one-on-one time for a week Mm. with them. Mm. Ironically, I like broke my ankle the first day that I walked home from radiation. Mm. So, well, I just, my friends had to drive me. I had to drive to and from, I couldn't walk anymore. Oh, I was goodness. like in a big boot. Oh, gosh. So I was so glad I had those friends, you know, yeah. to help and they helped like make dinner and stuff like that. And then I came home. Yeah. I came home in January. Before you move on, can we just spend a minute and talk about the serving of the body of Christ. Because that sounds like at that moment, and I know it's really throughout your journey, um, but it sounds like in that those particular moments and in those three months, that's where things were real. And not just your friends who came out and visited you, mm-hmm. but for those who were helping care for your family, for your husband, Ty, who's who's taking care of three girls, where he could have, if with apart from a community, would have been doing that on his own. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness! Yes, this is like a podcast in and of itself. <laughs> but absolutely, the body of Christ, and I think I'm going to go one more step and say that God used people mm-hmm. to provide and serve and equip us for what we had to do. That aren't a part of the body of Christ. Yeah. And that was really beautiful to see too. Mm. I think that what we've gone through and the way we've seen, for example, we, you know, set up a meal train, like some friends set up a meal train thing for us. And like in two days we had meals for six months every other day. I mean, I had to call my friend and I was like, just cut it off. It's like embarrassing. <laughs> you know, who knows what life's going to be like. The rest of your life in perpetuity. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's, um, and that kind of thing. Like when I looked down that list of people bringing us meals, hmm. it was people we knew 20 years ago yeah. in like, you know, service and ministry. It was people from the wedding industry that you just kind of barely rub shoulders with. Yeah. It was people for sure in our church body. It was people we just 
neighbors. And I think it was a picture of community in the most beautiful way. And the way it's like that shalomness Mm -hmm. of whole life flourishing that God puts you where you are. Your job is to love the people who are right there with you. Mm. And it's like seeing that down the road, basically. It was a really beautiful thing. And even like when we were raising money, we were raising actual funds to get us out to Houston and, you know, have to live in an apartment for three months and eating food and everything. You could see who donated and, you know, I'd be like, I don't know this person. I have no idea who this person is. Right. (laughs) Over and over and over again. Hmm. People signing up to bring meals that were like friends of a friend, or I've gotten a lot of letters in the mail, or even we got checks in the mail from people who would say, you don't know me, (laughs) but my friend so-and-so was sent me your blog. And it just has really ministered to me in X, Y, Z way. And I just wanted to be a part of this journey. Mm. And I think the second part of that is the prayer piece. I believe in the power of prayer. I know because I've seen it with my own eyes. Mm. This can be a complicated thing to talk about. Yeah. Because it doesn't mean God gives you what you want or that, you know, you ask and he provides. Yeah. There is no like mathematical equation right. to prayer. And it's not like Santa Claus with a list. Correct. Yeah. But when you have like a thousand people literally saying that they're praying for you, mm. I can't help but believe that there's things are happening there. Mm. So that means a lot in terms of community mm. and the body of Christ. Yeah. You know, lest people think, oh, I, I need to be bringing the meal or I need to be. You know, prayer is no small thing. Yeah. And I think you, the beautiful thing about prayer is you can be doing that and nobody ever needs to know. Yeah. But you're contributing in a really powerful way. Mm-hmm. We could not have made it this far without all of those people. But then I also need to couple that with those people wouldn't have known if we didn't say, here's where we are. Yeah. Here's what the needs are. And that's another thing. I don't know. Going back to the American gospel, we're not good at saying, I need. And we're not good at being real, you know, vulnerable Hmm. in that place, I think. Yeah. But without it, you can't. (laughs) It's like you have to have both, you know? Hmm. Like the body of Christ, like can't show up if you're not willing to open your heart a little bit. Yeah, and say, "I'm struggling." Yes, correct. Yeah, because we want to look like we have it all together, mm-hmm. and we want to put that yeah. brave face. And you know, how are you doing? I'm fine. Everything's great. Mm-hmm. It's not great. You know, people need to know the reality that life has challenges and it's difficult and, you know, God's bringing us through things and we trust in that, but he also provides a community to support and build up and encourage and uplift. And if you isolate yourself from that, you remove yourself from those means of grace, the prayers of the saints and the the care of the the believers and, and, and the surrounding community even, then 
you're almost, I don't know, you're tempting God to say, find some other way to take care of me. I don't want it to be the people of God. That's mm-hmm. the means by which he's provided. Mm-hmm. Could he do it supernaturally? Sure. You know, manna can fall from heaven, but this is the means that he's chosen, and gratefully so, rightfully so. And, and um, you know, I one of my favorite verses, you know, the manna falls from heaven, but then eventually there's a verse that says, and the manna, and on that day the manna stopped. Yeah. And the people grew from the ground. And it's like the Lord does provide. There's natural means. There's supernatural means, but then there's also natural means mm. that he uses for provision. Mm. And I think that interestingly, like with the joy of participation and just seeing this overwhelming support and just raising, it just felt like an astronomical amount of money for us to be able to do this in a very short amount of time was like supernatural and natural coming together. It was supernatural. Like the Lord really quickened that and gave us what we need when we needed it. But also it was natural because we had all those relationships, you know, and you get to know people and you Mm -hmm. invest in them and those things work together. Yeah. So at that point, when I got home from Houston, I was technically, they don't use the word remission anymore. Mm -hmm. They use the term, no evidence of disease. No evidence of disease is the new language for remission. So it means we don't see anything. Yeah. And with inflammatory breast cancer, you really need five years under your belt of no evidence of disease in order to kind of say, whew, yeah. I'm probably going to be okay. You're in the clear. And so um, I had my one year no evidence of disease. I had a big party. I like threw myself a big party. Yeah. And that was in October of this past year. Yeah. Uh, no evidence of disease. And I wish that was the end of this. But mm-hmm. then in... Um, then most recently, yeah, in I started getting sick. I started feeling pretty sick in December and went back to MD Anderson. I go back to MD Anderson every 12 weeks for scans. So every quarter, but it's actually been more than that because every time I go, there's like some issue and they're like, we need to see you back in six weeks. It's it's just part of the it's just part of the journey. You get used to yeah. flying yeah. to Houston, flying back, flying again. Racked up the frequent flyer miles. Oh yeah, we have. Oh yeah, we have. And this time they just, we were, you know, it was just shocking. I mean, they pulled up this scan and it was cancer in my lungs, cancer in my liver. Yeah, it was just a huge shock. Mm. So technically where we are now, we're still like in the middle of figuring some of that out. But where we are now is um, just stage four. It's back, you know, and it's it's metastasized to my lungs and liver. Mm. So... That's where we sit. Mm. In terms of timeline, what are the doctors saying? I know that you receive treatment every few weeks or so. So the initial timeline, well, when we talked to my oncologist at MD Anderson, right after, you know, we saw these scans, she said, you know, she wanted to be clear that like this, there was nothing curative. There's nothing you can do to cure this. And that with a, like maybe another patient, she was basically like with another person, I might say five or six years. Yeah. But because of the nature of just historically what this cancer has done um, with the overriding therapy, 
she thought two years would be good. Mm. We've had so many people asking, how can I pray? What can I pray for? And we've just always said, just pray for a miracle. That's pray for a miracle because mm. that's the only thing we've got. Mm. And um, there are already some changes in my body that are really positive. Mm. And we're sort of like holding, we're in like a weird waiting place, you know, but I feel like with cancer, you're always in a weird waiting place, yeah. honestly. Yeah. That's one thing. One of my takeaways from this journey actually has been, I think we're always wanting to get to the next place. Well, if I can just know when, the, when I get this test back, I'll have an answer on, you know, has it grown? Has it shrunk? Is it there? Blah, blah, blah. Which is the cancer part of this, but it's the same way. Okay. You may be at work. Well, when we just find out, you know, what the giving was like for the projected, you know, for the past year, or, you know, if you own a business, if you can, if we can just find out what the market's going to do, or we all live in this perpetual place of like not being where we actually are of just wanting to get to the next thing and feeling like we're going to have peace when we get there. Yeah. And it actually doesn't bring peace No, when you get there. Mm. And I think that at its base level, that's because we look at circumstances to bring peace, yeah. which we all know it won't. And we say we don't. We <laughs> say we trust in the one who, yeah. you know. Yeah. We just, want him, we just want him to change our circumstances. <laughs> yes, exactly. So we can feel better. That's exactly right. I, I just want him to change my circumstances. And I do want him to change my circumstance. And I believe he can. Yes. Um, But. Even if he doesn't. Even if he doesn't. And I think even in the waiting, I'm feeling just more and more convicted. I think this is like where I am right now. You, I would not have been this way three years ago. Uh, it's, we're almost on a three-year mark from, you know, when I was first diagnosed. Mm. I think that's where I am now is. Uh, I'm feeling a real conviction that where you are like today is a place I sort of think of, um, you know, Jeremiah talking to the exiles in Babylon and saying, Hey, plant your gardens, build your houses, get married, have kids, better the city because you're going to be here. And I want you to be here. This is here, this place of transition is actually where I want you to just like dig in for a minute Mm. and just feeling kind of convicted by that, that I'm always looking for this next, well, if I can find out if I, is this therapy going to work? Do I need to, and it's like, what if just right here, right now is like, God has things for me in this and God has things for the people around me in this Mm. place and in this space. So I'm still kind of learning that. Mm. I think. And your family, how together as a, as a unit of, you know, five, you know, just in your mm-hmm. nuclear family, what, you know, navigating all that has that has going through all of the roller coaster ride is the way you put it. How has that transformed, you know, even something as simple as family time or, mm-hmm. you know, meals around the table? You're right. As families, as, as individuals, we're always looking on the horizon at what's coming down. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like maybe this is giving you these moments of like, we're here now together. Let's squeeze every last drop out of it. 
Yeah. You know, I was telling a friend recently, it's not like what you see in the movies where you're kind of like, I'm going to live each day to the full. It's not really like that where you, or like this bucket list situation, like we're going to do all the things. Right. Um, I care so much about family dinner and I try really, really hard to make that happen. And I've always cared about that, but goodness, now I care so much more. (laughs) Ty and I probably as a couple are less busy than we were before because we intentionally are sort of like, no, I think I'd rather just be at home with the girls that night. Yeah. You know, I think I'd rather just like eat popcorn and watch a movie with them than go to that thing Yeah, or go to dinner at those people's houses or whatever. Those are all wonderful things. It's just, I, I think one of the hard things has been, you know, teenagers, anyone who has a teenager living in their house (laughs) knows like they're, um, they're emotional roller coasters in and of themselves. And they really don't want to like talk about it. They're, yeah. they're not like wanting to come home and be like, so mom, you might die. Um, look, they don't let's talk about do that. that. Yeah. yeah. Right. You know, they don't want to talk about things that are really uncomfortable or mm. so um, just finding ways. I mean, I'm very prayerful about that, about mm. just finding ways to like connect with them on a little bit of a, a level that they are comfortable mm. And then, you know, you have a five-year-old who's like all joy and doesn't really understand Mm. much of it at all. She'll occasionally say something like, "Um, is that because of your sickness, mommy? You know, she doesn't get it. I think that the biggest change for sure is just marriage, the marriage relationship. The Ty and I have always had a, a very good, like, we're, we love each other. We're like, he's my best friend. We've been married for 20 years and, um. But man, it just cancer, we call it the, um, the collateral damage. It affects everything. Yeah. Everything. And I think it affects the marriage relationship in just so it's like the tentacles are, there are so many, you can't unwrap them. And so it's been like, we've had some of our sweetest times Mm -hmm. because we've had these, like had to have, had to have these like really honest conversations. Mm. But there's also, it's sort of like, I think anytime you have a trauma in a family or in a relationship, which is what this is, it sheds light on maybe little cracks or fissures that you were able to ignore before. Yeah. And you can't ignore them anymore. Mm. Like the light is there, it's glaring, and you're like, oh, we have to talk about this. Yeah. Like this has to be. And it's done that, which I think is for the better. Mm. You know, it's for the better, but it's hard. It's Mm. not easy. Mm. So what are some of the particular lessons? I know sometimes we come come back to the lessons thing, but I mean, that is, you know, it's what, it's what God is doing with us, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he's constantly teaching us and then he gives us the benefit of being able to put that on display well or unwell and, and, and help others <laughs> yeah. with that. What are some of those big ones that, you know, someone listening to this who is going through a similar situation or is going through, you know, I remember in, in, I think it's your most recent blog and you talked about how you had friends that are, their kids are really struggling. A word for them, a word for the person who maybe feels like they have it all together, but, you know, is perhaps lost Mm -hmm. and caught up in the pursuit of themselves or, you know, whatever it is. I think back to just the gospel desperation Mm -hmm. 
is exactly where God wants you. Yeah, but not where we want to be. No, it's it's interesting. It's the and that's actually if you are inclined towards self righteousness, like I am, and like most people are. I think if you ever think, well, I mean, I'm not terrible. All you need to do is look at the fact. Look at how much you hate desperation. Yeah. To realize what a sinner you are. That's sin. Yeah. that's your that there it is. Because yeah. I do not want to have to be dependent on God. Yeah. And he just creates, you know, opportunity after opportunity for me to be dependent on him. And I think that um you know, there's a John Bailey, the little book of prayers. John Bailey has this book of prayers and there's this one line he has that's like, Lord, let me not try to find an alternate route around what you have put before me. Mm. Yeah. Lord, let me not try to find an alternate route around what you have put before me. And that just hits my heart because that's all day long. I mean, all day long, I want the easy path. I want to figure out how to make this go away. I had a lady over for tea that I met that is a stage four cancer. She's a very rare cancer of the appendix. It's Mm. like, like one in a million. Mm. And we were connected and she's over at my house for tea and we're chatting and just having a, you know, a conversation about cancer and about spiritual things about our kids. And I walk away from that. And I think, you know, nobody wants to go to prison, but prison ministry happens when people go to prison, go to prison (laughs) (laughs) and, you know, have a heart change or Mm -hmm. they're Christian and they do dumb things and they go to prison or they're Christian and they're put in prison. (laughs) I mean, Prison ministry happens because people are in prison yeah, and people with cancer need to be ministered to. Mm. And I just think about how many people have come through my life because of this cancer, mm. because of the blog, yeah. because of just the things that the Lord has orchestrated in my life. That is certainly not a story I would have chosen for myself. But first of all, I'm not dead yet. And there's still, you know, relationship to be had and work to be done and a life to be lived as long as I can. Yeah. And my hope is that that's longer than doctors think. Yeah, right. (laughs) You talk about how we still pray for the miracle. We still ask that, that God would do what he is capable of doing. But, and again, I thought... You put it so well when you wrote it out, holding hope mm-hmm. and trust together, mm-hmm. right? The Christian life is often holding two things in tension and then walking that out. We tend to want to fall in one ditch or the other, right? It's only mm-hmm. only hope. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the hope is where our trust is, you know, and it's like, and the hope is really in just what you want God to do. And then when that doesn't happen, someone didn't have enough faith, someone failed, Mm -hmm. someone, Uh. you know, that circles back around to what we talked about earlier, which is that American gospel Mm -hmm. mentality. But that is not ever the message from Scripture. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. No, I had people, you know, because I own a business and, you know, it's 
we have people come just pop in um, and like drop things off like notes or whatever books or things. Oh, this is for Sarah. I'm following along with her story and just, you know, um, a lot of that, which is so sweet. I mean, I read all of it and it's yeah. so encouraging, but like sometimes people will, you know, someone dropped off a book that's like the power of self healing. <sighs> and it's like with a note that was like, I don't think you have enough faith basically. And I was like, oh, I'm so sorry Return for you. To sender. Something, something is going to happen to you and you are going to yeah. self-condemn. You are going to implode because everything you've believed is now undone. Yeah. What a horrible way to live. Yeah. Really? It's yeah. a great way to live as long as everything's going well because you right. can pat yourself on the back and say, yeah. well, I must be doing great. I'm doing it all right. But it's horrible. It's like being with Job's friends. Yes. That's right. But then, then there's this, that, yes, I would say that's another lesson. I mean, you bring that up. I mean, I, not lessons, but um, yeah, a huge takeaway for me, especially lately in the last like two or three months with this recent diagnosis is the trust and the hope. I guess the word I'm looking for is almost fragile or tender. Yes. The hope part of it that yeah. it's like hard to even say out loud because I am so cautious of getting people's or my own hopes tied to circumstance. Yeah. That it, even though I trust God and I know he can do it and I know he's able. I mean, this is the God who parted the Red Sea. This is the God who spoke a word and someone was healed. I know he can, and I know he's willing. I know he's able. I just don't know if he will. Yeah. And that's the part that's hard. Like, for example, with my kids. Yeah. It's very hard when it's so personal. I believe it. I believe it. But to say it out loud, like to a 14 year old. Yeah. Who's like, I don't understand how it could possibly be good. How is it good for Eden, my little sister, to be right to not have a mommy. Right. How is that good? Yeah. And I'm like, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. And that's the trust side. That's the trust side, and it feels almost unbelievable if you don't know the Lord yeah. and you haven't had years of experience with Him. Yeah, and that's why I think one of my encouragements to your listeners would be, um, start now. Yeah, because you really don't want to be like in a boat taking in water, looking up and saying, what do I do now? Like you, you want to know like where the oars are in the lifeboat. Yeah. <laughs> before right. you Where's, get the life to jacket? Where's the, yeah. You know what I mean? Um, cause you know, nobody gets through life unscathed. Hmm. And I think the trust part comes from, I mean, just like a human relationship, it's built. Yeah. It's built. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I think we could probably talk a few more hours, <laughs> but um, I know you've got things you need to do, and um, I'm so grateful that we've been able to to have this conversation. I encourage everyone who's listening to this to go and visit the Happy Envelope. Is it thehappyenvelope.com? Yep, that's right. Mm-hmm. And um, you can uh, peruse some of the uh, products there. But um, certainly find your way over to 
uh, Sarah's cancer journey, I think is the Mm -hmm. tab there. Read that, be encouraged. You write so helpfully and clearly, and we all feel like we're right there with you. I have most certainly wept over those blog posts and have laughed, and you're a very engaging writer. And so we just say thank you for, I mean, that's a that's a service to, to people, uh, to be able to, to read someone who's able to convey their emotions and feelings through up and down, all of that so helpfully and so well, always leading us to the, to the right point, right? Pointing us to Christ, who is our ultimate hope in the midst of this journey. And so, Sarah Patterson, thank you so much for having us and, and speaking with us today. Well, thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation and um, for all that you all are doing. During my interview with Sarah in mid-March, little did we know that good news was just around the corner. As we were working on post-production for the episode, I received an email from Sarah. She shared with me that she had received new test results and wrote, On Good Friday, Ty and I found out that I have no detectable cancer, not in my lungs and not in my liver. What an incredible blessing. Sarah, her husband, and even her doctor were moved to tears by this unbelievable turn of events. God, in his sovereignty, chose to change the course of Sarah's life. And we give thanks for that. We wanted to hold off on giving you this news because I thought it was important to hear from Sarah through the lens in which she was looking at God, her life and her situation. None of us know the plans God has for our lives. But what is important is to see our circumstances through the lens of the gospel and not the gospel through the lens of our circumstances. We are filled with gratitude and joy for Sarah and her family. We ask that you would join us in continued prayer for them, knowing that the one who holds them is faithful. Let us praise the Lord together. Candid is a podcast from Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Youssef. Don't forget to connect with our social media pages on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And subscribe to Candid Conversations on your favorite podcast platform so that you never miss an episode. While there, please leave a review. It does help people to find us. As always, thank you for listening to and sharing this episode.